You are listening to Conservation Nation, an optimistic and open-minded podcast that investigates and interviews interesting individuals in the fields of production, agriculture, conservation, and natural resources. Join co-hosts Shauna Copran and Tiffany Martin once a month as they discuss conservation topics, practices, and strategies. This is episode four of Conservation Nation. Thanks, Tanner, for coming on to Conservation Nation uh, with us today. Tanner is the Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator with South Dakota Game Fishing Park. If you could just kind of give an intro about yourself and kind of what you do as the Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on today. So as you mentioned, I'm the Statewide Aquatic Invasive Species Coordinator for South Dakota Game Fishing Parks. I was hired on in February uh, to take on this task with Game Fishing Parks and Kind of a general summary of my position here would be to coordinate and collaborate with within our agency and outside of our agency to build our AIS program throughout the state and to acquire additional funding to help with our AIS efforts. For example, partnering with the conservation districts on working on all of our Western reservoirs, having that possible through our funding that we receive from Bureau of Reclamation. So that's another collaboration that we had this year that we did not have previously. So a good portion of my position is dealing with uh, obtaining funds for AIS and then collaborating and coordinating with with area supervisors and then with the conservation districts on our watercraft inspections, which I also partake in the training for that. I, I go around the state and do all the training for our watercraft inspection and decontamination operations that we have statewide. And uh, and then on top of that, I also am part of multi-state working groups looking at the spread of invasive species and what we can do uh, to mitigate those issues and try to make more sound research in stopping the spread if we can on on certain AIS species as well. Awesome, so let's just launch right into it. What are some of the aquatic invasive species in South Dakota? Sure, there's a a fairly long list, but I can highlight the most serious ones that we probably deal with within the state. Everyone probably uh, is familiar with common carp. Some people might not consider them invasive because they're almost everywhere, but they, they are an invasive species here in the state and they're fairly widespread. They can definitely cause damage to your water body. They, they root up vegetation and it can turn a, a clear water body into a very turbid water body and reduce the amount of vegetation almost completely in a very short amount of time. Uh, we also have silver and big-headed carp. They are more recent to our AIS list. Uh, they, they came in the state here, I believe roughly around 2010 and they have caused some issues especially in the southeastern portion of the state and then uh, up the James River as well. Silver carp are the, the infamous flying carp that people might see in illustrations. They can jump up to five, six feet out of the water. Uh, and then their counterpart, the big-headed carp, both of them, they, they filter our, our water and eat the same food that our, our game fish eat when they're uh, young and growing. So they can, they can cause a lot of issues as, as well with our, our game fish. And then... I'm moving over to our invertebrates, uh, zebra mussels. Hopefully most people have heard about zebra mussels at this point, but 
uh, zebra mussels are, are a very big concern for game fish and parks and uh, the nation uh, in itself. They have so slowly spread throughout the United States starting back in the late 70s and have worked their way uh, into most of our states. And our highest efforts are probably with zebra mussels. I'm trying to prevent the spread of them, especially in West River, South Dakota. Uh, we're doing our best to help mitigate that and try to educate the public on best management zebra mussels, but that's a big focal point for us. And then probably our main aquatic vegetation that we deal with would be curly leaf pondweed. Uh, in a lot of instances, uh, zebra mussels are actually transferred uh, through vegetation and curly leaf is, is a big component of that. So that's probably the, the most serious invasive species that we currently deal with. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, what are some of the, like, why should people care about aquatic invasive species and, and what are some of the economic impacts of having them in South Dakota's water bodies? Yeah, so in general, our, our big concern with our invasive species is that in order for them to become established, they mean, that means they have to take out some sort of our native population to take a foothold in these areas that they are infesting. And just for example, our, our zebra mussels have a strong negative impact on our native mussels. Our native mussels do a more adequate job filtering our water in a healthy fashion where it's, it's not going to cause anything negative to the water body. Where zebra mussels, they are kind of like our native mussels on steroids. They, they filter, once they're established, they filter all of the water on a weekly basis and that can cause a lot of issues and they can grow in a lot higher concentrations than our, our native mussels do. Uh, they can grow, they can have as many as 700,000 per meter squared. So very high concentrations, which can cause a lot of issues with our infrastructure in these water bodies, such as irrigation systems, filtration systems, our, our dams, they, they cause a lot of damage from mitigation efforts, just cleaning their filtration systems on, on our reservoirs. And then for just our, our daily users of our, of our water bodies, they can cause issues with uh, water usage. Um, people that want to use our beaches for recreational activities, they can cause issues with uh, cutting people's feet because uh, they have very sharp shells. can make swimming sometimes very difficult because they clear our water bodies up so much that it causes increase in vegetation in a lot of our systems. And no one wants to be swimming through uh, eight foot long vegetation. What are some of the economic impacts of having aquatic invasive species in South Dakota water bodies? I would say the two biggest impacts would be with infrastructure. So on the Missouri River, our, our dam systems, hydrological systems that reside there definitely are heavily impacted with, all, with their filtration systems. We just had a bill go through or a petition to work on those and to treat those uh, filtration systems because of the impact they're having on our dams. And then lake homeowners probably are gonna hit, get hit the second hardest with this, just having to change their habits on their lakes with having to do boat hoist versus permanent permanent ramps that are that are submer submerging their boats. They're going to want to get their boats out of the water. And then uh, beachgoers are just going to have to change their habits as well, putting on aqua socks potentially, 
the, the water is going to look beautiful, crystal clear, but you are going to have uh, to deal with some sharp mussels that are on the lake floor and maybe some more vegetation, which can be cumbersome too. So. So if a water body was to test positive for the different species of AIS, what happens? Is there anything that can be done to get rid of them or anything like that? It's definitely situational on the water body and then the species that is infesting that water body. For example, if you have an early detection of curly leaf pondweed, uh, that is treatable and isn't crazy expensive either. But when you're trying to do a lake-wide eradication, that is where it's a little bit more infeasible for uh, finances and for guaranteeing success if it is infesting the entire water body. Depth definitely comes into place too. Some of our lakes are really deep and the area infested might be only the littoral zone, which is your near shore habitat. And that's also something that we can treat. But if you have a, just a big deep bowl, and that's uh, spread lake-wide, it's gonna be really hard for us to treat that. Thing with AIS is that depending on the species and depending on its distribution, the chance of reinfesting that water body after it's treated is definitely a concern as well. So for an example, in the Northeast right now, we had a meeting at Lake Cochran Association and they were wondering about different ways to prevent the spreading of their zebra mussels further into their lake. And then what would be some treatment options to try to get rid of them? And there are definitely a few different chemical treatments that are available right now, but you also have to weigh in the, the chance of your leg getting reinfested. So as of right now, I think our science is definitely building with, with our different AIS species and how we can treat those. But the initial steps is definitely monitoring those populations. We're, we're definitely working on that. And, you know, I just encourage uh, lake homeowners, uh, different associations to to also do their own uh, research when it comes to AIS, because there is a lot of information available to the public on the internet for, for different ways to, to treat these species and different venues to uh, reach out for that. So hopefully as we move forward, uh, everyone becomes more educated in AIS as it's, it's always gonna be a problem in the United States. It's just how we can treat that and how science evolves with, with the development of AIS. So. A common question we've been getting from uh, boat owners and stuff up here is, aren't there any natural predators to a lot of these species? Can you talk a little bit on that? Because that's one we hear a lot. So the word natural uh, is kind of a, a stretch, but there are some invasive species in nearby states that do predate on zebra mussels, for an example, uh, or vegetation. Uh, grass carp, they're invasive, but they primarily feed on aquatic vegetation. Uh, you also have black carp that feed on mussels, but they also feed on native mussels. So that's the downside of them. And then round gobies is another fish species over in the Great Lakes that, and in Minnesota that predate on zebra mussels. But in all these systems, there's still zebra mussels present. So there, there is some benefit to these species, but there's also a lot of negative uh, interactions with these species with our native species. So as it sits now, no, not really. Yeah. So if you had boat owner or uh, lake homeowner and they thought they identified an invasive species or plant, uh, who would they contact? What's kind of their first step 
they think they have found something that's invasive? I would encourage him to reach out to me to start off with. And then if the conversation needs to be continued uh, on to local law enforcement or uh, local fisheries biologists to go uh, inspect that location, I, I, would, I would move on from there, coordinating that, that work out that, that way. Uh, we, we're trying to build our citizen monitoring program. So we're hoping to get more PVC samplers out to different uh, lake associations and different lakes throughout the state so they can help try to identify these when there is early detection capabilities. So uh, we'll try to be vamping up that here in the next uh, year. So uh, there are pretty simple sampling tools, just people at home can even make them. Uh, you just cut a foot and a half uh, piece of PVC pipe, roughly two inches in diameter. Uh, put two of those on a long string and then tie a weight to the bottom of the, your, your string and put it on the end of your dock. And then if zebra mussel villagers are present in your water body, they can settle out in those PVC samplers and then you can pull that up off the end of your dock whenever you want to, to see if, if zebra mussels are present. So that's definitely one way to, to check that out. And there is options on our citizen monitoring program under South Dakota Least Wanted where they can upload photos and then I can look at those that route as well. So what are the laws in South Dakota and how have they changed? Yeah, so recently we've had uh, some different ruling that was passed through legislation. Uh, one of those being us having the capabilities of having mandatory check stations, whether that be an entrance or an exit inspection or a roadside inspection you are now required by law to stop at inspection stations when proper signage is, is up. Sometimes we'll be setting up an operation and people will drive by, but they wouldn't know better because we don't have signs up. So if signs are up uh, documenting that the inspection station is open, it is uh, by law a requirement to stop at our inspection station. So that's, that's probably our biggest uh, rule change that we've had. We're currently looking at a couple of other rulings, but as it sits right now, uh, we, we do require a decon on watercrafts that are moored in an infested water body for three or more days before they enter into another water body. That's just kind of ground control so we don't uh, increase our, our infestations in the state and the chance of acquiring uh, an, an AIS specimen in that amount of time does increase significantly, but that's why we really stress clean drain dry in the state that helps prevent that spread. What is South Dakota doing to try to prevent the spread of the AIDS? Yeah, so this year is actually our, our highest presence in the state. Uh, we've been able to partner with the Conservation District, uh, with Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, we've also have some partnerships with water districts and the Forest Service, either having equipment stationed at, on their ground or partnering with them for employment to get boots on the ground for our watercraft inspection stations. Uh, we're also increasing our media outreach. We are doing gas station television throughout the state at 42 different gas stations. We also have something that's called an incident experience. If you come in contact with one of our boat ramps uh, that we pre-specified in our georeferencing, uh, uh, an alert will pop up on someone's phone and, and give them some information on our AIS species and what you should do to prevent spreading those. It should be like a 10 slide uh, presentation you can swipe through it and read 
and that will help educate our our boat or our water or our water users. And then we've also partnered with Enemy Swim Conservation or Preservation Association, doing a seven day a week inspection station at their uh, main boat ramp. Uh, things how uh, Pickerel Lake is infested and it's just down the road from them. They were really concerned about infesting their water bodies. So we partnered with them. And then outside of that, I mentioned before our citizen monitoring program, we're working with that. And then we also have information in our fishing handbook on AIS species. Uh, we have a website called southcoatleastwanted.se.gov. We have signage at our boat ramps indicating regulations to comply with. And then we also stencil in uh, plug in and plug out at our uh, multiple boat ramps. And then outside of that, we have a roadside inspections that we switch up on a day-to-day -day basis to try to reach new users and educate our public. Awesome. So you've mentioned it a couple of times about check stations and roadside stations. Can you talk a little bit more about what they are and how they work to help prevent the spread? Definitely. So we hire on interns or this year we also hired on conservation district employees and they were trained in on uh, watercraft inspection and decontamination. Once these employees are trained in, we either have them situated at a, a entrance location on a water body or a roadside where we find that the most traffic for water users is. We're trying to maximize our contacts with the public to help educate the public on not spreading aquatic invasive species. The best way for prevention is education. So uh, that's our main focus with our watercraft inspections. Uh, when someone encounters an inspection station, we are just informing them what we're doing, that we're gonna be doing a quick inspection. It should only take a minute to two minutes if it's a low risk boat. Uh, and we're gonna be looking over their, their vessel to see if there is any AIS present or any standing water present uh, on that watercraft. If they meet those standards and they have not been on an infested water body in the last 14 days, uh, they're good to go. So we're just trying to get information on where they've been and where they're going to, to assess the risk of that boat. The other risk that we have with boats are ballast tanks. Ballast tanks are a high risk situation because the residual water cannot be pumped out of ballast tanks even when you run your bilge. So we're also looking at that and, and if they've been on an infested water body. So after we go through our risk assessment, if something needs to be done, we will decon that vessel, whether it be just a quick uh, hot rinse of their external hull or a quick motor flush that only should take 10 to 15 seconds once the water's running or doing a standing water decon on their live well or in their ballast tanks or, or, in, their, or in their bilge to prevent the spread of any uh, villagers or settlers or adult zebra mussels getting transported to a new water body. A lot of times we'll have what's called swag. Uh, it might be sponges or towels or dechlorinator that we will give out to some people of the public if an inspection or a decontamination is needed. So they can use that in the future to help prevent uh, them spreading any. That information is actually forwarded or accessible to all of our Western states. So if we do a decon in Central South Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, they all can access that information uh, right after it's uploaded. So it's a great tool to communicate between states and know if there is 
somewhat of a risk coming their way. So what are some things that boat owners can do to help prevent the spread themselves? Like what can they do? Yeah, so uh, two big phrases that we use is clean, drain, dry every time. So you should always be cognizant of what you're pulling out of the lake when you pull out of the lake. You wanna make sure that your drains are pulled or your, your plugs are pulled and that any standing water in your vessel is sponged out or, or dried via towel or you're allowing enough dry time 14 days so that you're not allowing any, any spread of AIS. Uh, if you're not bringing any, any water in, which you shouldn't be, uh, you should not be bringing any water out. So double checking your live well, making sure your plug is pulled in there. A lot of people forget that there's a, a plug you need to pull in your live well, uh, making sure that's pulled, making sure you're pumping out your water out of your ballast tanks, not of your bilge. And then on jet boats, you wanna make sure that you're, you're flushing uh, your boat there as well. And then one thing that uh, a lot of people don't know that are starting to figure out with our inspection stations this year is that you also wanna lower your lower unit to get out of a water body. There's a lot of residual water that stays uh, inside the motor. And unless you lower your lower unit, uh, that will stay in your motor uh, until you launch again. And, and that's one vector for spreading AIS. So we try to educate uh, people the best we can on that as well. If there's one thing that you'd like people to leave with, what would it be? Like one message that you could give them from all this? A bit of a loaded question. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> yes. So I would say overall, for us to prevent the spread of AIS going into the future, the best way for that to happen is for widespread education on AIS. We in Game Fish and Parks do not have the manpower to control uh, all watercraft movements in the state. So that's why we're trying to maximize our contacts this year on educating the public on best management practices. So always practicing clean, drain, dry. And if you're not bringing any water in, don't bring any water out. And that's the best viable tool for us to prevent the future spread of AIS in the state. So if producers have questions about AIS or anything in general, uh, who should they contact? Where should they go? Is there an email address or a website that they would be able to get uh, a lot of this information that you talked about today? Yeah, so if they have general questions about maybe what one of our aquatic invasive species looks like, that all that information can be accessible on our South Dakota leasewanted.fb.gov page. Uh, it shows our current invasive species in the state and talks about our citizen monitoring program. And uh, you can also, if you're not a, a tech savvy person, you also can look at our handbook. Uh, and that talks about our aquatic invasive species here in the state and our regulations. Otherwise, if you have more questions than that, uh, you can contact myself at tanner.davis at state.sd.us or call my work phone at 605 three, six, seven, five, two, four, four. Those are both viable options. And uh, if I need to coordinate with any of our local area offices for more direct answers, if they need someone to look at something, I can coordinate that work after that. But I encourage everyone to uh, contact 
the statewide aquatic invasive species coordinator, which is myself. I, yeah. I try to take on the role of all AIS if I can before delegating any information or any work out to our local supervisors if they've got enough work. So perfect. Well, thanks, Tanner, so much for visiting with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to Conservation Nation. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If there is a conservation topic that you would like discussed on our next episode, please reach out and send us a message. We want to hear from you. Have a wonderful day and see you next time.